You're listening to The Camel Cast, where your hosts, Jackie Smith and Lisa Vogley. Hey everyone, it's Lisa Vogley here, and welcome to our fourth episode of The Camel Cast. I'm joined by my co host, Jackie Smith. Hey, Jackie. How's it going? Good, good. How are you? Doing all right. All right. Uh, it's been a heavy week, uh, or a heavy one, I should say, for our country and in light of our nation's current state. So we thought it would be great to invite our Director of Race and Ethnicity Programs, Truth Hunter, as our guest today. Hi, Truth. Hey, how are you all? We're doing super well. How are you? I'm doing well. Well, Thank as you. well as I can be at this point. That's true. We really appreciate you taking the time to come on our Camel uh, Cast podcast. Um, and we thank you so much for being here. And to begin, I always mess this up. I say viewers, so I'm going to be much better this weekend. I'd love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about yourself and where you're from so they can learn who you are. Sure. Um, thank you for inviting me. Um, this topic, what's happening in our world today, um, is really important. And, um, and I just it's a priority to have these conversations. So um, just a little bit about myself. Um, I self-identify as an African-American woman. I was born and raised in Oakland, California. I come from um, a working class family. I'm the first person in my family on my mother's side to go to college. And really that part of my story is what um, has gotten me to where I am today. Um, it, when I was in high school, I just had this dream that I really wanted to have a high quality education, specifically, um, go to a liberal arts school on the East coast and all women's college. And I ended up at Mount Holyoke college without any, um, like I said before, all I knew is that I wanted to have a good education. And I knew that going to one of the seven sister colleges would enable me to do that. Um, but I had no idea what I was getting into. I didn't know what it would be like to um, be a, constantly be a woman of color, to be a racialized body. I came from Oakland, um, the Bay Area, which is one of the most culturally diverse places in the United States. So all these talks about diversity, we didn't talk about it because that was our norm. You know, um, I grew up with people from all types of backgrounds. So um, going to Mount Holyoke uh, was a culture shock for me. And because I was the first person in my family to go to college and they really didn't understand what I was doing there. Like there are schools in California. Why would you go to Massachusetts? <laughs> yeah. Like, why are you putting yourself through this? So even though I was facing challenges at Mount Holyoke, I really felt like I couldn't go back home. I had to prove to my family back home as being the first gen student that I could do this. And then I felt like I had to prove to everyone in my environment that I belonged and that I deserved to be there. So my first two years um, were really challenging because I was dealing with a lot of those emotional and you know psychological issues of who am I um, proving myself. Um, but once I got grounded in community, found mentors who supported me, found my voice, um, and, and I decided to study critical social thought, which was really um, a breakthrough for me uh, with a concentration in post-colonial studies, which enabled me to explore this 
overarching theme about how people of African descent reinvent their identities after oppression, after slavery, after um, colonialism. How do they make sense of who they are? And I was really supported in my academic department and something magical happened. I actually started to think that I was intelligent and smart and capable. And after those first two years of like trying to prove myself to my family and try to prove myself to my peers, that I had forgotten that I had this intellectual passion within me. Um, so to make a long story short, I ended up graduating in 2007. And because of my own experience of negotiating all these multiple identities as first gen, low income, woman of color, now I'm in Western Massachusetts, I decided that I wanted to pursue a career that will enable me to advocate for underrepresented students. So I went back home to California and for four years, I worked for Upward Bound, which helped underserved students get into college. So that was my passion for four years, but then I realized we're getting them there, they're not staying. And I discovered my new passion was the retention of underrepresented students. So I decided to go back to graduate school. And once again, for some reason, I only think colleges are on the East Coast. So <laughs> I went to UConn um, to study higher education student affairs in 2012. And really that allowed me to take a, um, a deep dive into specifically um, studying the experience of first generation students and um, looking at their strengths instead of their deficits. What strengths are they bringing to their educational experience, right? What are they bringing from their communities that actually allows them to be successful in a more privileged um, environment, an environment that is defined by race and class? Um, so after that, after I graduated in 2014, I went to Bar College, another um, liberal arts school in upstate New York, and I worked for their educational opportunity program where I was able to work with underrepresented students uh, on a daily basis um, around um, retention, um, supporting them, um, helping them find their voice. And, um, and then I ended up at Connecticut College in 2017 working for um, race and ethnicity programs, overseeing our historical multicultural center on campus. And, um, and that has been a fantastic experience. So that has been my journey in a nutshell. I love it. Have you been back to, does your family still live in Oakland and do you get yes. to go back often? Yes, my family still lives in Oakland, California. Um, my immediate family. So my mm -hmm. mother, my father, my siblings. Um, I do have extended relatives in Springfield, Mass, and also a cousin uncle. I call him cousin uncle because he's old enough to be my uncle, but technically my cousin. Got it. Who lives in Groton. And he oh, nice. served as my surrogate father. Has He appointed himself when I moved <laughs> to New London that um, it's been fantastic because these are family members who I didn't grow up with, but just mm -hmm. took me under um their wings as even though i'm an adult they have loved and cared for me so yeah so i have family immediate family in california extended relatives um on the east coast so it's a little uh i went to school in the bay area i went to saint oh. mary's college of california yeah in, in moraga in moraga go gals oh, that's really cool yeah and i have a lot of uh fun i live there well i went to school i graduated in 07 just like you and then i cool. stayed uh, until 2013. So, um, 
a lot of my friends live in Oakland and I have seen it transform. It's, yeah. it's a great city. It's, I mean, the restaurant boom and the culture yeah. is, has in the 10 years I was there, completely right. and utterly uh, changed and evolved. And I think uh, it's such a, I loved it out there. And yeah. you talked about, you came back to the East, you came to the East Coast and learned a whole bunch about yourself. I'm a Long Island jock. Right. I went out to California and talk right. about, I went to Berg, I would walk down Telegraph for the first yeah. time and went to Oakland and found all these restaurants with my friends. And I'm like, and mm -hmm. I come from a really diverse town on Long Island in Port Washington and mm -hmm. uh, really proud that my parents raised me in this town. But when I went out to California, I was like, holy mackerel. Yeah. Like, and I, I, I learned a ton. I learned a ton about myself just because of geography, like where I was. Yeah. And it was so different than the East Coast. So you and I kind of flipped a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And look, and now we're at Connecticut College. Right. <laughs> That's very and, cool. And I'm from Western Mass. So I know the appeal. Cool. It's just gorgeous out there, you know? <laughs> Just gorgeous. Um, so such a cool story. I didn't, you know, I knew, obviously I read your bio, so I knew where you studied, but um, so interesting to hear your story. Um, and I guess, you know, for our listeners, um, can you, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing specifically at Khan and what your job entails here at Khan? Yeah. Um, well, one thing I can say, the reason why I absolutely love my job is that um, I can bring creativity into it. Um, my supervisor, Dean McKnight, the Dean of Institutional Equity and Inclusion, when I started, he, he said, Truth, I'm just happy you're here. <laughs> and, uh, and I needed that because I am a quintessential liberal arts student to the core. And I still carry that into my career. So um, at the most basic level, what I do with my work um, at Unity House, our multicultural center, is that um, I oversee two, pro two major programs. So one is our Genesis program, which is um, a, a mentoring program for first-generation students and students of color. And then on the other hand, we sort of have like this programming um, piece to our work where we do heritage months. So September Latinx month, November Native American Heritage Month, um, February Black History Month, April Asian Pacific Islander Month. So that's really the core of what we do. So we have these two areas. So the first area of mentoring is sort of like building the internal building of race and ethnicity programs in our community. And then our heritage month is about how we reach out to the broader Connecticut community and provide educational opportunities for us to talk about the experience of marginalized communities. So at the heart, um, my work is to oversee those two components. But back to what I was saying about being a quintessential liberal arts student, I'm just like in a liberal arts Disneyland in terms of career. So I work with the dance department. My second semester at the college, I partnered with um, the chair of the dance department, um, Shani Collins, and we wrote a proposal to have a TRIPS course, which is a, a travel research and immersion program, which enables us to have funding for each of our students 
to study abroad connected to our class. So mm -hmm. because we had a dance class, I also do West African dance and Shani teaches West African dance. We were able to take our students to Senegal in spring of 2018, fully spent trip to explore the history of slavery by going to the slave castles where enslaved African people were held before they were put on the ships to be trafficked to, um, to the Americas. So we were able to engage them deeply in this historical experience, but we challenged them to transform that experience to original choreography and we had a public performance. So, I mean, I'm a dancer, I'm an activist, mm -hmm. and I can do all of this in my job. So, so that's an example of like the sky is the limit. I also yeah. work with STEM faculty um, helping them to understand more deeply what are the experiences of underrepresented students on campus? What are some things they need to take into consideration when they're serving underrepresented students? And what might be, in, in what ways um, um, implicit bias or forms of microaggressions um, play a role in the classroom experience? And because these are more subtle forms of oppression, how do we identify them and how do we make interventions? Um, and I also work with the CTL and, and do a lot of work around faculty development. So to describe the job that I do at Connecticut College um, really is holistic. It's across campus and I just really enjoy working with a lot of different departments. Man, no wonder why you're Joe amazing. Happy. I, holy moly. I know. That's awesome. Your email uh, signature is probably like <laughs> a nice long paragraph. You're, it's so awesome to talk to you. I mean, I, I sat on the faculty staff awards, that meeting that we had, and you won one of the faculty awards. And when you, when you spoke, I know we don't really know each other, but I get really motivated. I got really inspired by your words. You were just so genuine and kind and really appreciative for the award that you receive from your colleagues and I'm reading the chats and everybody's like, go truth. And then like when somebody <laughs> else won, you gave that right back. And I just, I think it's a nice thing about Khan, but it's all, it's really amazing to hear all that you do. Um, Thank you. Your job. Thank you. So, so obviously there's a reason why we decided to record this podcast yeah. when we did, you know, right now it's Tuesday. And we're going to be releasing this podcast tomorrow on our typical Wednesday release. Um, and, you know, the, the murder of George Floyd on Memorial Day has ignited the nation. Um, you know, protests and the anti-racism movement that's spread, the social media that's spread. Um, you know, we, we understand, you know, Lisa and I have had conversations. We understand how important it is for those who are white to break white silence, to have these honest conversations. It's why we asked you to be here. So right. I guess before we kind of get into it and, and ask a bunch of questions, I, I guess first and foremost, I want to ask how you're, how are you doing? Yeah, that's a really, really um, good question um, considering the circumstances. I think as a Black person, um, and, and also understanding the history of Black people in America, uh, which has been a history of exploitation and abuse and segregation. I think oftentimes when these things happen, um, th there is a numbing effect 
you know. Um, of course, there's a range of emotions, but I think at this point in my life, um, I am deeply, uh, I'm, I'm grieving, but I'm also really um, thinking about where do I want to put my energy, right? And I think that's the most important thing. And I think right now where I want to put my energy is in my community, supporting the grief of Black families. And every time this happens and we see these powerful visuals, it triggers a trauma, right? And this trauma is as old as America, right? Because people of African descent were brought here in chains. You know, they were brought here to be exploited. They were brought here to be enslaved. And that pain from that point in history is passed down from generation to generation. So every time we experience the things like George Floyd and, and we're able to see these visuals, there's a generational trauma that happens, right? So it's not just an isolated situation of just one Black man dying at this point in time. Oftentimes when we see these things, it's triggering um, something that's more deeply rooted. And that's what I'm really interested in. Um, one, as, as, as a Black woman, as a person of African descent, and two, as an educator. And, and that, is what, um, that is what I want to communicate with people when I have these conversations. That is not, let's not just look at this moment. Mm -hmm. This moment is connected to a really powerful history. And this ugly part of American history is what we don't face, right? What we don't want to face. Uh, we want to be so committed to this narrative that we're good people, that it prevents us from doing the work of looking at the truth, right? Because we're like, no, we're really good. We're hardworking Americans and we're a melting pot and we, <laughs> We want to do the right thing and we're good people and we stand up for justice. That's what this country was founded on. But we get caught up in that narrative and we don't realize that narrative is hiding the truth, right? That we don't want to face. And I think that's what makes um, this moment very difficult because when we're forced to face it, right? When we see that video of this black man saying, I cannot breathe and now we have to face the truth, right? And I think that implicates everyone, everyone in America. You know, it's not a black problem. It's not a white problem. It implicates everyone. So I think um, right now where we're at is that we have to come to terms with this history. Because if we don't, every time these situations will come up, um, it's like we're to totally, we're not equipped. We don't know what to do. How can this be happening? What do we do? To, we get into panic mode because mm -hmm. we're not facing um, this history and this reality. Yeah. I mean, you just touched on it. Like I was going to ask my next question is like, I think there's a lot of white people, especially at con, it's right. like overwhelmingly white right. that if you ask them, they're like, I'm a good person. I, I don't like That's racism. Right. I, I'm disgusted, disgusted right. by the video that I saw. I'm, but I'm really nervous to have these conversations. I'm really nervous right. to post on social media because I, I, I feel like I don't want to offend and right. I don't want to say the wrong thing. And I, 
you know, I, I, I'm not the one oppressed, so I don't, I don't know, should I be outspoken? Right. And like, that's, and, but I, like, it's so good. Like you so brought up the, the point that I've been thinking about a lot, a lot about is like the education piece, like, yes, you know, like, I don't know, I guess what are your, th- I know you touched, touched on it a little bit, but yeah. you know, Lisa and I have been talking about it a lot. Like we we're like, we just met as a department. We've been yeah. meeting about the statement we want to put out as a department. Yeah. And everyone on the call was white. So, yeah. you know, everyone's like staring at each other. Like we, we, we want to make sure we're right. Saying the right thing. Right. We're, we're pissed off that, you know, we don't want to toe the line. Like yeah. there's like all this stuff. It's and it's just it's like, it's good that I'm so glad we're finally having these conversations. Yeah. It's about freaking time that this is starting. But again, it's like history, history has proven that these awful things happen and it spurs this moment of conversation but then now what 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 what's now you know like and I just I think you nailed it on the head in regards to the education piece and that it's a part of our history it's not known absolutely and just to add on to what you're saying in terms of thinking through like how white people come to terms with this reality um first of all if we want to genuinely enter into this conversation, you gotta be humble. It's not going to be comfortable. It's mm-hmm. going to be messy, right? You just gotta prepare. And if, and if you're not willing to be humble and authentic and vulnerable, the conversation isn't worth it. Because we're talking about black lives that are being destroyed. And we're talking about that at the same time as white privilege and supremacy that enables that relationship to happen, you know? So I think we have to be willing to be vulnerable. You know, there's no room for the ego. There's no room for, well, I'm a good person. I get it. Okay, let's let's think about it like this. Everybody, you're a good person, check. <laughs> now let's get over that. Mm-hmm and have a real conversation, right? Okay, you get you get a point for coming to the conversation. Now, are you gonna do the work in the conversation and really explore what is your responsibility, even if it's indirectly, right? You're like, oftentimes, and I work with white students a lot too, even though my work is mostly with underrepresented students, but I'm at a pre- predominantly white institution. And when I talk to white students about this, one of the things they say is they they get confused because they're just like it wasn't it's not me is it if that happened you know 200 years ago it wasn't me but how do you benefit from what white people did and 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 we do have to be specific about what white people were talking about historically right we're talking about wealthy white people, white men of privilege, right? And sometimes white people don't identify with all those different markers, but somehow over time, you're able to benefit from that historically, right? And you have to see yourself in that history, right? So I, oftentimes I see that white people just, they, they have good intentions, but they're like, I don't see how I fit into the puzzle. Like, if it, it wasn't like necessarily my ancestors or it's not, we're not doing anything bad now, right? And it's because we don't, um, oftentimes 
we have to look at these things from a generational point of view, right? Um, because like I said, when Black people experience trauma, it's just not today. It's also the trauma from 400 years ago, right? But oftentimes when white people enter the conversation, they're only looking at today, but they don't see how that oppression, right, or, or that privilege or that power, right, is connected to the early history of America, right? And how over time they became a beneficiary of it, right? So this conversation is about, it's not about guilt. It's about responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how do I figure out what I'm responsible for um, in this particular conversation? So that, I would love to ask you, what is, like, what do you, what is my responsibility besides, you said it, check, good person, right. um, educating myself. Right. I mean, um, I'm very lucky that I have friends all over, we have, conver my friends, we have very, we have these conversations. Right. Um, learned a lot from my friends, learned a lot from all my, like, what do I, what, what is my responsibility? Cause I think Jackie said it best. Like I'm not somebody that is going to post something on social media right. just to post. Cause I think that right. that's, I use this word a lot. Like, I don't want to be a fraud. I don't want right. to just post something, donate, give my, what do, what, what do I do? Right. I think that's a fantastic question. And, um, and I, and white students ask me this all the time. And I used to like give them examples of things they could possibly do, but I don't do that anymore. As an educator, it's my responsibility to put the ball back into your court. I'm sure you all understand that as- coaches, That's a good one. Right? You need to figure out the answer for yourself. There is no better or deeper learning than when you go within you and trust that the answers are inside of you, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and the thing that makes that difficult is that the answer isn't gonna come right away. You're gonna have to engage in conversations, you're gonna have to read, you're gonna have to kind of like absorb everything and be committed to the process. And then you're like, oh, I know what my contribution is. My, based upon my personality, my background, my story, my values, my principles, now I know how I want to enter into this. So there's no answer, right? There's no checklist. It's really that deep introspection work. And in addition to that, being in community, having these conversations, because community and conversations begin to stimulate what's within you so that you know what to do, right? So yeah that that's how that's what i would encourage um white people to do and i think and, and correct me if i'm wrong here but you know from a lot of the conversations i'm part of the lgbtq community mm -hmm. and you know a lot of, from a lot of discussions that i've had it's it's um a lot of like be your genuine self yeah say and do whatever you want and if you offend say, say, you don't mean to say sorry and learn what it is that you did wrong, learn from it, grow from it, and then continue to be your genuine self. I feel like a lot of people are afraid to make a mistake absolutely, because they don't want to want to offend, but it's inevitable that at some point we're going to do something wrong and right. say something wrong. And it's okay to say, wow, I'm so sorry. I did not mean for that. Please teach me, learn from it. And then and we move on and we grow and we keep, I don't know, but that's kind of how I've been feeling in regards to, you know, I know I've 
I've learned a lot about, I know this isn't what this is all about, but like pronouns and making sure I'm, you know, learning more about how I'm communicating with people. I've, I've learned, I've made mistakes and I keep growing. And I think that it's something that we can do in, in this regard as well. Yeah, I totally agree. I think um, the growth mindset, Carol DeWitt's work around growth mindset has tremendous implications about how we should engage in these conversations. You know, like we have to come in with a learner's mindset and know that we're going to make mistakes. I make mistakes all the time, all the time, but I allow myself to, and I really try to be committed to learning from those mistakes. Um, and I think once we're over, able to get over that hump, uh, that's when we will start feeling more momentum around these conversations because we come into these conversations with baggage. That's baggage. Oh, I'm going to say the wrong thing. Oh, I'm going to get the pronoun wrong. Oh, I'm going to call the person the wrong name. Oh, I'm going to say something stupid. Now you can't even have a conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So like we have to recognize the baggage that we bring into these conversations and we have to let it go. You know, um, it's easier said than done, but those are the things that hold us back. Mm. Um, so segueing here, I've, and we could talk for, I could have a three hour conversation with you. Um, <laughs> <Yep>. So, <I'll, laughs> But, um, you know, kind of moving towards Connecticut College specifically. Yeah. Um, you know, you've, you've talked a lot about, you know, I've, I've, my notepad here is just scattered with notes. And um, I guess one of the, the big things that I'm curious about and, and would be interested to hear your thoughts on are what are some ways, I guess, let's talk about the positives first. What are yeah. some ways that Khan, like clearly what you, the work that you're doing is phenomenal. The mentorship that you're doing, mm -hmm. the, the groups that you've, you know, been working with at Connecticut College it's all sounds unbelievable. Like, can you touch on a little bit of some of the positive changes, yeah. the positive things that Connecticut College is doing with regard to this specific matter? Sure. Um, in regards to related yes. racial violence or- Correct. Yeah, I think, I think the decision for the college back in 2016 to even create the Division of Institutional Equity and Inclusion um, is an important one, right? Um, and I think we know that now, especially when these issues come up, right? We already have a division in place. We have different colleagues who are looking at oppression from different angles. I look at it from race and ethnicities, Aaron does gender and sexuality, racial looks at sexual violence, um, Angela looks at religious and spirituality, and we're all very passionate and grounded in our areas. And then we come together and we really try to explore these issues from an um, intersectional awareness. So I think the college um, having put in place um, this particular division four years ago sort of equips them that when it's when these issues come up we have people who've already been thinking about it already doing programming already that's why our student leaders now like they were they we were on a video call yesterday and they're like we want to do this and we want to do that and we're the structure was there yeah right and sometimes we don't notice that but that's the benefit of having this division 
also over the last um, year, um, there's an equity and inclusion plan. Um, and it's a public document um, that's incredibly thorough uh, that gives specific um, sort of tasks and responsibility for departments across campus for how to integrate uh, more equity and inclusion into our work. So that's some of the broad things that our division is doing. And of course, we recently launched our intergroup dialogue project, which equips our students with the skills and the confidence to have the conversations that we're having right now. See, the thing about these conversations is that you actually need skills to have them. Mm -hmm. You know, people think, oh, if I have a mouthpiece and I just talk and say what's on my mind, no, that, that's not gonna be a productive conversation, right? Like, so the intergroup dialogue is really helping our students have the capacity to listen to other people, to understand how identity impacts what we're bringing into the conversation and to prepare them to be leaders to have these conversations and hopefully to create policy and change. So broadly, that's what our division does. Um, but oftentimes um, issues come up on campus and we can't be as proactive or big picture as we want to. And we have to just extinguish that fire, right? But I think the idea and the theory behind our division is that we're in place. So when these things happen, we have the structures, we have the student leaders, we have the equity and inclusion action plan. We have a philosophical idea about how we want to engage these conversations from an intersectional lens. I have a, I have a random question, but mm -hmm. I know John, one of my players was in uh, John McKnight's freshman class. Yeah. Um, but do, you, do we have a class at Connecticut College that like, not that I need to put anything more on your plate, but that like you could teach, you said about this project where you guys are teaching kids how to have the conversation and giving them the tools to have open dialogue. I mean, I think that's an amazing yeah. opportunity for kids all over our, like our players, sure. our, our students to have it in like a class capacity. Cause it sounds yeah. like it's a, it's a voluntary, right? Is, is that right? Like it's, um, you can sign it's up both. for it or? It's both. So the student oh, okay. you were referring to, it was a class fall semester of 2019. Okay. So Dean McKnight and, um, and a professor from Pika, Audrey Sikriski, mm -hmm. her name correctly, um, they co-taught it together. Okay. And it, it was uh, it was a first year seminar. Yeah. And, and they were a group who really took a deep dive in the intergroup dialogue principles, and um, and they practiced they practiced it intensively. So that kind of created a really powerful cohort. And then in the spring of 2020, we invited um, any student on campus who wanted to continue to train. And that gotcha. also included students in that class. So um, Aaron Duran, Director of Gender and Sexuality Programs, he organized a retreat basically for anyone on campus who was interested. And then they trained up another cohort. So now they have a cohort mm -hmm. that's ready to start in the fall. And then I think they'll do that same model again. So he, um, Dean McKnight um, plans to do that first year seminar again. 
And then over time, the vision is that other professors would integrate into group dialogue into their courses and it could be a, a concourse. And then, and then there will also be opportunities if a student isn't taking the course to do like a weekend intensive mm -hmm. to begin to understand the principles. And then we'll have like a whole like group of students who are trained in intergroup dialogue and they can go out to um, athletic groups and run a training or mm -hmm. for a club and run a training. So that's, that's the vision. Gotcha. Okay. So I do, one of my players, one of my freshmen was in uh, Dean McKnight's class. And I remember we were, we always do class check-ins and we ask about their classes. And she actually, she said that it was tough in the sense that, you know, she's this uh, white female and there was some really hard dialogue. And I said to her, I'm sure it was really tough, but what an experience you're going to have as an 18, 19 year old and right. you're given this environment that she didn't feel judged or excluded. She, she did, she was very blunt with me. She was like, I, in some cases I felt really uncomfortable and I didn't speak up a lot because she felt what kind of Jackie and I were talking about, didn't want to offend, didn't want to say anything wrong, but she walked away from it. She was like, coach, I learned so much from it. And I don't know like what grade she actually got because we do care about grades for, for them, but um, her and I had a conversation about it because I said, have you, like Dean McKnight, I've only had a few encounters with him and he's amazing. Like he's mm -hmm. one of the most welcoming um, administrators that I've ever had the opportunity to work with. And I even said that to him in like an all staff meeting. I said, how's May doing? He's like, she's great. So, but it brings up communication, right? You can see me, like I'm rattling and I love all of this and I thrive in it, but I don't think... I'm doing the right thing. Like, I feel like I'm just blabbing, like you said before. And I want to, I don't know if the word is do the right thing. I want to learn. That's I want right. to educate my kids. Like, I, I, I want to get them to take this class. And I want them to feel uncomfortable. And I want them to learn because that's what happened to me. Right. Um, like, St. Mary's is a private liberal arts school in the suburban area of Moraga. Right. But... I loved it. Like I was surrounded, I was taught by so many different people and friends, like your experiences, I think help you. And if you don't have those experiences, you get put in this box. Right. So this is the rabbit hole I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, can I get my kid, like, like that class is amazing. Yeah. And like, can I sit in on it? Can I do something sure. that doesn't make me a fraud or people are like, what is she doing? Like, I'm invested of building up the conversation. Yeah, um, I, I definitely think that the cohort that they're building now will enable student leaders to go to collaborate with the women's basketball team and say, hey, let's do some sessions together, you know? And then in terms of like staff and faculty, I know um, recently before, you know, the school was, we, before we were forced to go home and work remotely, um, we were having a staff and faculty group um, around a book called Mindful of Race. And um, I know that um, Dean McKnight was integrating some of those intergroup dialogue principles through that as well. So 
I think that in the future, we will continue to, to do that work and make those opportunities available for faculty and staff to also learn um, these particular tools. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so not, not to end on a negative note or anything like that, but I, I do, you know, when you said four years ago, we started this division, I'm like, only four years ago? Like this, yeah. what? Like, yeah. how is this not put together 50 years ago, right? So, right. you know, I, I, of course we've, we've been progressing and we're doing a lot of good things, but there's a, still a lot of room to grow. And I right. think Khan's in a great position um, to be at the forefront of a lot of great change. Um, so I guess a question for you is, if you had the capability of, you know, doing one thing or, or a big initiative, mm-hmm. you know, what, what would you do to change? What are some of the things that Khan could do? Um, and like, cause I think that's, that's the big thing that I've been thinking a lot about is action. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the conversation's great and, and important and the statements are important, but the action, the, the actual change is mm-hmm. really the, the thing that uh, I'm focused on. And so curious as to your thoughts, like we got, we got a a lot of room to grow as, as a, as a community. What do you think we should do? Wow. That's a big question. (laughs) I don't know if there's one thing, um, but there are some particular things that have been um, on my mind and on my radar. And even though a lot of the work I do is around students of color because I'm director of race and ethnicity programs. I've been thinking a whole lot about social economic class. And, um, and when we're recruiting and we're um, reaching out to students of color to come to Khan, um, particularly students of color who might be from a lower social economic class, um, I think it's important for us to think about how they will be holistically supported while they're on campus. So of course the institution is committed to meeting the full need, but the fact of the matter is like Khan is a selective elite expensive school. And even if you meet the full need, there are other hidden costs. And I just, and I know that's something that's really specific but it makes me just think about this legacy of like elitism, you know, and even though we're trying to bridge the gap, I think this is a good time to really talk about what does education really mean and who has access to it, right? And who is privileged within this particular setting. Mm -hmm. And I think liberal arts institutions and all of their glory, it provides this bubble sometimes that um, it disconnects us from the world. And I think we need to do more work with popping that bubble, um, more genuine, authentic work with engaging the New London community. Um, because I do, when I, I live in New London and when I talk to folks, there is sort of like, oh, Connecticut College is up there, you know, on that hill. And, um, I guess my concerns overall are around not only how do we put the liberal arts into action, but how do we give 
the ordinary person access to the liberal arts, right? So it's not only me as a person of privilege who gets to go to a liberal arts school and now I get to put it into action, yay. <laughs> no, what are we doing, right? To make this type of education, you know, access to information about intergroup dialogue, the, the value of being these diverse communities. These things are enriching our lives, right? But how do we make this accessible to families, low-income families, if that means doing work in local libraries and schools and partnering with businesses and organizations? Um, and I know that that work has been done on campus, but, or I know that efforts have been done in the New London community, but I'm really interested in seeing how the liberal arts can evolve, right? and evolve from this model of having the wealth and the privilege to come here and sort of transforming the way we see the liberal arts where we begin to have these tentacles out in the community um, that are, are, are highly engaged. You know, um, for example, I, I shared with you all that I worked at Bard College before I came here and they have the Bard Prison Initiative where they're teaching college classes in the prisons, you know, and that's just one model, you know, I'm not saying we have to do that, but we can be teaching liberal arts classes to elderly people. We can be teaching liberal arts to um, young people who are taking a, like, what are we doing with all of these resources and information? How do we make it accessible and especially to people in New London to increase the quality of their lives, right? Mm -hmm. Because I see how the liberal arts have changed and transformed students and I think that's great, but are we expanding that vision beyond people who can pay, you know, over $70,000 a year for this experience? So I know I said a lot, there's so many ways, um, of tackling this question but that's the first thing that comes to mind no i love that it's a thought that i have all the time mm -hmm. when i go out recruiting that you you hit a lot of the you articulated it much better than the random thoughts that are floating through my head but you know i i, I think i was lucky enough to have a lot of experiences in other places and so mm -hmm. when i came to Kano, it was a little eye-opening as to you know not having the athletic scholarship I think that has allowed me to be on more diverse rosters and being a part mm -hmm. of a program that's a much more diverse than what I inherited at Con. And then you start to think about like, well, why is that? And what it, what's, what's kind of going on and what's happening to, to make that so, and how do we fix that? <laughs> right. How can we, you know? And so it's, no, I, I love hearing you talk. Let's just stop the recording and the keep her on for another five hours. How about that? <laughs> She's like, I got a job to do. I know it. You're crazy. It is. Um, well, I know, Lise, you, you had some questions in regards to um, just maybe some uh, different things to leave our listeners with. Mm. Um, yeah. You have, have um, any thoughts there? You know, I, it, I'm, I, I'm an athlete. So I'm going to bring it, I'm going to reel it into athletics a little bit. Um, 
what like any any advice or feedback that we talk to our even though it's summer we still talk to our players um what can i share with them yeah i'm not sure if i have like super tangible suggestions because i'm really into self reflection so i have right. some as you said before yeah. mm -hmm. i have some reflection questions for um your lacrosse players you know um one question would be why um why is why is the team homogenous what are some factors to why everyone are sharing some some dominant identities right um what is it about lacrosse in itself its culture that might be exclusionary why other groups may not be attracted to it right um, and what role do we play in perpetuating that? Um, another question I would, or not a question, it's more like just a reflection. You know, there's a lot of stereotypes of athletes in terms of like only caring about athletics, right? Um, and, and you're sort of just like, that's all that you do. And I just think this is a good time as an athlete to think, how do I use my privilege as an athlete, right? Um, as an athlete, you have influence, you inspire others, you have a captive audience. How can I use my privilege specifically as an athlete to advance these conversations, to use it as a platform to just sow seeds into other people in term, even if it's just asking or, or posing questions. So I would want your lacrosse players to know like, you have power, you have privilege mm -hmm. by being an athlete and even having the conversations among your team and using this, everything in our lives can be used as a platform right now, mm -hmm. you know, and just reminding them of that, you know, and asking themselves the, the, those hard questions. I shall. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, Truth, thank you so very, very much. I know this is um, hopefully just the first of many conversations we want to have as many people on here to, um, you know, discuss different issues and, and the pertinent information. I think I've learned a ton just in this one hour conversation. I hope our listeners uh, have enjoyed it. Um, and again, I just, I know you're super busy. I know this is a really hard and emotional and tough time and so for you to just have um you know the the patience to talk with us and answer our questions yeah. and um we just I, I can't thank you enough for for taking the time well thank you for the opportunity this was a really uh, an awesome conversation and i'm and i was more than happy to connect with you all awesome thank you